Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Missio. And again, just want to welcome you this morning. Uh, We are blessed as a people of God to open up his word together this morning and to hear from him and be led uh, by his spirit as he teaches us from his word. And so we're going to continue our series through Psalms, the songs of our great king. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 6. So I invite you to turn there if you've got a Bible or grab one. Hopefully there's one near you in the pew there. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 6. It'll also be up on the screen. Uh, and as you're turning there, I just want to mention, again, you may have received one of the bulletins as you came in, uh, but a couple of things that are coming up this Saturday. We have a fall cleanup here uh, around the grounds from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. So if If you want to come out and help serve together uh, this coming Saturday, 8 a.m., and uh, we've got some projects set up in each of the different buildings and around the property uh, just to get things ready for the winter, we would love to have your help. And then the next Saturday, for all of the ladies, we have our first women's discipleship breakfast on the 26th uh, at 8.30 to 10. And uh, we know, ladies, we would love to have you come out. I wish that I could come. My dad and Ed Butler are making breakfast, so I wish that I could be there. But ladies, come on out and enjoy that and uh, the time together in the word and encouragement with one another. So Psalm 6, going to read, please follow along. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that you are a God who speaks to us and reveals yourself to us. That you are a God who comes to us in distress and trouble and extends grace and mercy. That you are the God who is making all things new and will restore all things according to your justice and righteousness. And so God, we come to you as your people, a people in need of your grace, a people dependent upon you. And so we pray that as your church, as your people, that you would speak to us this morning and teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Most likely you've asked a friend or a family member this question, are you okay? And even though they tell you, I'm fine, all of their nonverbals are telling you otherwise, telling you that something is in fact bothering them and either they're just not ready 
or they're just not willing to talk about it. And some of us right, are those who process everything out loud, no matter how we're feeling, no matter what we're thinking. Others of us struggle to find the right words, and so it's, I'm fine. But if you ask David, the writer of this psalm, are you okay? He's not one that's going to say, I'm fine. Right? He might actually say, well, I wrote a song about it. He doesn't seem to struggle finding words to describe his emotions. And in, in this, this psalm, Psalm 6, he's deeply troubled to his core. And he's very descriptive of what he's feeling, why he's feeling it. And the psalms, as we've talked about as a whole, express a lot of emotion. That's why we've mentioned it's been called an anatomy of the soul. That these psalms express a full range of emotions. And this one that we're looking at this morning is especially passionate. And for most of it, there's a sense of deep despair. And for you and I, as we process life each day, relationships and decisions and actions of ourselves and others, we're flooded with emotion. Whether we're able to verbalize it or not, we feel anxiety about the future. We feel at times Depression over how we perceive ourselves. We feel grief over what's happened. We feel weariness over all that's going on, how much is on our plate. Sometimes anger, sadness, helplessness, sometimes just apathy. And it comes from our interactions with the world around us and what others are doing, and it comes from within us. We know, we believe, as God's revealed that he made us, He's our creator. He made us in a world full of good. He declared it good. In a world full of his glory and goodness, he made us to enjoy him, to enjoy that world, to enjoy all that he has made. But as a result of the sin of mankind, as a result of rebellion, we live in a world that's cursed. So we're faced all of the time with evil around us and from within us, from our own thoughts and desires. And in this psalm, David's desperate because of the evil that he sees from those two sources, from the evil that he sees in the world around him and from the evil that he knows is within him. And when he considers those types of evil, he's deeply troubled, deeply distressed. But what we see is as he turns to the Lord, he's reminded that this is not actually the whole picture Though yes, that's true, evil from outside, evil from within, but that's not the whole picture. As he turns to the Lord, he remembers him and he finds both help in the present and hope for the future. And as as we face, as people in this fallen world, as we face evil around us and as people who have rebelled against God, we face evil from within, from our own thoughts and our own desires. How do we find both help in the present and hope for the future. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So when David initially wrote this psalm, right, if you were asked the question, are you okay? Right, we get quite a few responses just glancing through this psalm. Right? I am languishing, he says. My bones are troubled, he writes. My soul also is greatly troubled. I'm weary with my moaning, he says in verse 6, to the point where every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. 
My eye wastes away, he writes in verse seven. It grows weak. So we're gonna take that as a no. Right? He's, he's not okay. Right? He's very descriptive of the fact that, no, he's not doing very well. So, well, David, can we ask what happened? One, it's, he's very aware of the evil within of his own sin. As we see in verse one, he's acknowledging his guilt and his position before God. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. At this point, he's thinking as he comes to the Lord because yes, he's being oppressed. Yes, he's, he's aware of the evildoers all around him. As he comes to the Lord, first he's aware of what's in his own heart. And so he says, rebuke me not in your anger. Right? God is still God. And as he comes to him, full of despair and trouble, he recognizes his position before God, asking for mercy. He's languishing and troubled, he says, because he recognizes his personal need for God's grace and his healing. So first he sees this from within, but then from outside, if we look down verse seven and eight, he's troubled because of his enemies. He says in verse seven that this grief Right? This grief is because of all my foes. Verse eight, depart from me, all you workers of evil, surrounded, wherever he looks by those who are evil, those who have rejected God and have rejected him. And so he's troubled because of the opposition that he faces from the evil in the world. And so he turns to the Lord and he requests several things. He says, one, don't, don't rebuke me. Right? Don't discipline me. I need, in other words, I need your mercy. Be gracious to me, he says. Heal me. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me. These repeated cries over and over for God to spare him in the midst of this evil. And as he turns to the Lord, we see this transition happen in verse 8. And this is a common pattern. We've already seen it in the few Psalms that we've been in where this desperation then shifts to confidence. Verse eight, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And it's not because anything around him changes. It's not because evil just goes away like that, that all of a sudden he finds confidence. It's not because he finds some sort of inner strength or inner self-confidence that changes his outlook, changes his mindset. It's because he's seeking the Lord. It's because he's turning to him in his desperation. And as he's doing that, his despair shifts to confidence. As he seeks the Lord, it brings into view the truth of who God is and what God is able to do. Because as he's going through this, as he's struggling with the evil within and the evil from outside, right? and as this happens to us as well, our view tends to be very myopic. But as he seeks the Lord, all of a sudden he remembers, yes, that may be reality. Yes, evil may be true. Yes, sin is lurking at our door. That is true. And the suffering that it produces is true. And the emotions that flood us are true, but that's not all of reality. So as he turns to the Lord, he's reminded of a bigger picture of who God is and what God has done and is able to do. And all of a sudden, his confidence is restored. We we see him at a place of assurance and rest with this threefold statement. One, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Two, the Lord has heard my plea. Three, the Lord accepts my prayer. In other words, there is help in the present. As he's facing evil, there is help from 
the Lord. And then we have this statement of resolution where he says, yes, and there's also hope for the future. Where he says in verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall, be, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Right? He has a certain hope for the future. There's a relief that's going to come as a result of the justice of God, that God is gonna make everything right. Someday he will take care of that which is causing him so much distress. It's certain. He says it shall be. At this point, he's not asking, right? Verse 10 is not a request. It's a statement of what will be. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And this, I'm confident this is what God will do. And it's complete. All of my enemies. There will be a day, right? When all of it will be restored. All of evil will be wiped out. And we'll see God's perfect justice. And he didn't, again, he, he didn't find his own strength and conclude, I can do this, right? David, you, you can make it. Just keep going. That wasn't his conclusion. He finds confidence in what he knows God will do. That though he has sinned, God hears his cries for mercy. Though the evil around him is great, God's gonna overcome and as we read this and we watch his journey through suffering and to the confidence that he has in the Lord, it is meant to point us forward to the cross. That we hear the same cry of distress echoed by Jesus. Several times, but specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14. We were here not long ago as a congregation. Whereas Jesus is going to the cross and he's, I mean, it's getting really close at this point. Right? He's about to be handed over to be crucified and he knows exactly, he has full knowledge of what lies in front of him and what he's going to endure. The pain that he's going to face on the cross, but really, he's struggling because he knows that he's going to take upon himself the sin of the world and the wrath of God that that requires. And so it says in Mark chapter 14, he took with him, Peter and James and John. And notice these words. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Right? So it's just like the words of Psalm 6. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So when we read the Psalms of suffering, right, they're intended to point us forward to the cross that when Jesus prays this prayer, it echoes the words of Psalm 6. He's greatly distressed and troubled. Just like the writer of the Psalm. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Just like these words. And this psalm is in the prayer of Jesus. It's intense. We see Jesus experiencing the depth of sorrow and suffering that's described by this very psalm. That he suffers not, not because of his own sin, 
not because of anything within him, but because he took upon himself the sins of the world. That's the journey that he's going through, what he's up against. We talked about this just a few months ago as we were in Mark. What was so overwhelming for him was the cup, he says, that he was about to drink is the cup of the wrath of God. For the punishment of the sins of the world, that's what he was looking at as he's holding that proverbial cup. Is the punishment that that we all deserve for rebelling against God, for choosing to go our own way, for living life on our own terms, for rejecting God's good plan. That's what Christ was up against, and so he's deeply sorrowful as he's looking at his future, his immediate future of being rejected by God for the sins of the world. As 2 Corinthians says, he became sin who knew no sin. And yet him, the son of God, he didn't carry this burden on his own, but he turns to his father. Just as we read in this psalm, he turns to him for help and places his trust ultimately in the father's plan. He turns to him for help in the present. Right? If, if there's any other way, if you could take this cup from me, he's desperate for his help in that moment and yet places his trust, his confidence in the father's plan for the future, not, your, not my will but your will be done. And so as we remind ourselves of Jesus' prayer, of his cries, we, we see his sorrow that he experienced was real. His suffering was real. That is the effect of evil in the world and evil within us. It results in sorrow and suffering and pain. And what Jesus was facing was real. It wasn't just that... I, you know, the son of God, he could drum up some supernatural strength and get through this just fine. No, he really genuinely experienced the suffering that's brought about by evil and sin. He endured that. He experienced that. And the truth is for us, if, if I, if we view this world in all of its brokenness, or if we view our own sin in our own evil desires and selfish thoughts, if we view those things apart from Christ, it is exhausting and overwhelming. When we think about what's going on in our world today, or if we're honest, right? if we're honest about our own thoughts and at times how selfish we can be and motivated by our own gain and self-centered we can be, if we're honest about that, and it's overwhelming to think about it. It's exhausting to dwell on it. But if we're able to pray this prayer with Jesus as our choir master, then our despair turns to confidence. Because number one, there's help in the present. Right? In this, that Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. For those who are in Christ, it's saying Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. That We have one who intercedes. You think about as he was going to the cross and he spent time with his disciples trying to prepare them. We read this account in John 14 through 16 where over and over and over again he instructs his disciples to pray in his name. And he tells them, right, 
what's causing him to give them that instruction is he tells them, there's going to be trouble. You're going to face tribulation. He's preparing to leave them. And he wants them to know, here's the truth. Right? He's not going to sugarcoat it. When I go, there's going to be trouble for you. Right? Because evil continues in this world. Because we still struggle with sin. And so we see the effect of that. And so the result is, you're going to face trouble as my people. And so he promises them his spirit. He reassures them that I'm going to send the spirit and he's going to be with you and he's going to continue to comfort you and teach you and minister to you. But he also instructs them this, to pray in my name. Five times, John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then the very next verse, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. The next verse, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full five times in three chapters as he's preparing his disciples for the trouble that they're going to face in the world he tells them to ask in my name and sometimes we're so afraid to go there and talk about those verses because of the distortion of the prosperity gospel that if you name it and claim it I will give it to you right that's not what he's talking about so sometimes we ignore the beauty and the depth of these verses the context is he's looking at a group of disciples who face trouble in the world Because of evil, because of sin, it's not going to be an easy road for them. And so he says, ask in my name five times over a very short conversation with his disciples. Because he intercedes. And so the psalmist says he's heard the sound of my weeping. He's heard my plea. He accepts my prayer. And so we can say the same thing as we pray in Christ, that our Father has heard our weeping. Right? He heard the weeping of Jesus. He accepts his plea. He accepts our prayer. So when we come to him in the name of his Son, he accepts our prayers not because we're worthy, not because David was worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. He hears his prayer every time. And so we come and we ask in the name of Jesus, right? Because that is where our righteousness is found, not within ourselves. Not our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in any other plan or anything that anybody can do in this world. But it's found in who Jesus is, the perfect son, the right only righteous one. That when we come to God through him, our perfect intercessor, he hears our prayers. He accepts our prayers. He hears our weeping. And yes, our sin and the evil of this world is overwhelming, but we always have an intercessor in Jesus because we come not in our own goodness. That's something we've got to set aside. We don't come to God in our own goodness. He's not going to listen to your prayers this afternoon because you were in church this morning. No. We don't come in our own goodness. We come to him in the name of Jesus, the one who is perfect and righteous and worthy. 
And so in him we have great confidence. And yet how long do we sit paralyzed by our own emotion as we face the trouble of this world and try our best to work our own way out of it? When there's help in the present, ask in my name. Ask in my name. Ask the Father in my name. There's help. And there's hope in the future because Jesus wins. Right? He begins the prayer. Verse 2, my bones are troubled. But by the end he concludes, all my enemies shall be what? Ashamed and greatly troubled. That in Christ, trouble and despair are momentary. They don't last forever. We know that the reality is sin is, is like a fast-spreading cancerous disease which affects our emotions and it cripples us so that we can't see anything else but what we're feeling and what we're going through. And yet Jesus said in John 16, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, we don't lose heart. Although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The things that we see, the things that we struggle with, they're real, but they're not eternal. The things that are unseen, he says, are eternal. That what we do see, the reality that we face day in and day out, it's painful and it's temporary. But what is to come, the hope that we have in the future because of Christ is so much greater and it'll last forever. And Jesus took our sin and our suffering so that we could share in his victory. So that the victory of Jesus is our victory, right? So that we can read verse 10, all my enemies and think, all, yes, all of the enemies of Christ, all of evil, right? All of sin, all of his enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled and say that is our victory in Christ because we are a part of his kingdom. So when our king is victorious, we can say, yes, we are victorious because we're on his Team, we're a part of his family because he took our suffering. We share now in his victory. Amen. You know, I think about my my two sons are nine and eleven, and a couple years ago, they started really getting into to sports, even stuff that I'm not interested in. And you know, typically, you see kids when they get into sports, their favorite teams are the teams that their parents are rooting for, the teams that their fam- that they grow up watching. Right? So what I'm about to tell you is not my fault. I, I bleed orange. I don't really watch pro- a lot of professional sports, but I love college sports. And so as my, my boys are getting into football a couple of years ago, and you know, you got to pick a team. Who are you going to go for? Well, I, I married a girl from New England. And so here's, I know, the risk of, of closing a sermon with this illustration is this all you're going to remember 
and most of the room is not happy with my, my sons. But again, I, I don't root for that team. So I married a girl from New England. Her father loves sports, and this team happens to be pretty successful in the moment. So when you're a kid, grandpa loves them. They're doing really well. They just won the Super Bowl. That's my team, right? And so last was it February, you know, sure enough, they win the Super Bowl, and you hear cries throughout the house of, we won, we won, we won, right? Sharing in this victory. That's their team. And yet the reality is we have no Super Bowl rings in our house, right? We, we didn't win anything. The players on that field just won the Super Bowl. We don't actually share in that victory. It's fun, it's exciting, but that doesn't mean anything for us. And yet not so with the victory we read about in verse 10 at the end of this psalm. The victory of Christ is our victory. We claim it as our own. He has overcome our enemies, our sin, the death that we deserve, and our evil enemy. He has won it all. And so we're able to pray in confidence, though this world stinks, and though our sin is always rearing its ugly head and our desires so often are evil, we can pray with great hope for the future because Jesus wins. And so we can say, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. God's going to make it all right. He has a perfectly good plan to restore all things, and Jesus is going to win. And so for those of us who are in Christ, right, that gives us great hope for the future. Yes, he's our helper in the present. Right? Because Jesus is perfect and good and righteous. Right? Let's not let the trouble of this world and the sin in our own hearts get the last word. But as we turn to him, we find help in the present. We find hope for the future. And so for those who are in Christ, this trouble is momentary. And for those apart from Christ, trouble and despair are eternal. Right? That's the opposite side of, of this verse. And so I, I say that to those who are not in Christ, to those who haven't trusted in him, those who, who are still struggling to put their faith in him. I say that to you this morning, not because I want to guilt you any, into anything, right? but, I, but I want to end there this morning looking at you and asking you to, to listen right? to this claim of victory. Right? He's not troubled anymore. He was troubled back in verse 2. He's not anymore. Because as he's turned to the Lord, he's been reminded of all that God has done. But for those of you who are apart from Christ, hear this, please. Your trouble, your despair is not momentary. But it can be. He can take it. He can be your help in the present. He can be your hope for the future. If you would cry out, be gracious to me. Heal me. Save me. If you would turn to him this morning and put your trust and faith in him, right? the trouble's not going to go away immediately. As Jesus said to his disciples, you'll still face trouble in this world. But you'll have an advocate to walk by your side in the trouble of this world and you'll have a certain hope for the future that he's going to be victorious. And so I would pray and ask that you would, would trust in him this morning.
that we all could rejoice that our king is victorious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, together we look to you this morning and we're thankful for uh, your word, for this prayer book which teaches us to pray, which teaches us to pray in Christ. We thank you that in him you hear our weeping, you hear our pleas, and you accept our prayer. And God, we thank you that we do share in your victory. That you have a perfect plan, that your power is sufficient, that you're not overwhelmed by the things of the world that overwhelm us, that your grace is is sufficient even for all that we have done and thought. And so God, would you restore our joy this morning? And for those who are apart from you, who have not yet trusted you, I pray that this morning they would do that, that that now in this moment, that they would turn to you for salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.